0: Hi, I'm
1: Dr. Akiva Down, and I am Rabbi Avi Green, and and welcome welcome to Interesting Questions. In this podcast, we'll be addressing issues that are philosophical, religious, and psychological in nature, and exploring some of the deeper questions as we go into Season 2. We will be focusing
0: on that which is considered to be controversial, and there may not be a right or wrong answer. So we are hoping that our discussions will yield more questions for your Shabbos table.
1: Yeah. Okay, Shavuatov. We are beginning Perek Bet of Pirkei Avot, Mishnah Aleph, and here we go. Rebbi Omer, Ezo hi derech yishara lo ha'adam, Rebbe, meaning Rebbe Huda HaNasi, said the following, What is the proper path, or the straight path, that a person should choose? Kol shehi tiferet lo'oseha v'tiferet lo min ha'adam. Any activity that is positive to the one who does it, and positive from other people. And one should be as careful with a simple mitzvah or an easy mitzvah as with one that is more strict. Because we don't know what the reward is for any given mitzvah. And one should calculate the cost of doing a mitzvah against its reward, and the reward of doing a sin against its cost. <inaudible> Consider or keep in mind three things, and you will not be drawn to do sin. Da mala mala mimcha, know what is above you. roa. <inaudible> an observant eye, and an attentive ear. And all of your actions are written into a book and recorded. So, this is a very large Mishnah by Pirkei Avot standards. And I think we might as well just take a bite from the beginning, Akiva, and say... It starts off by saying, by by starting with a question, right? Which is, what is the proper path for a person? And the first thing that um, Rebbe suggests is that you should do that which is positive for yourself as well as that which is positive for other people. And it struck me that he needed to include both because we can't just rely on what is good for one person to do for themselves, or what is society might say is right. It needs to be, perhaps, the combination of both. And so I was hoping you might share with us a little bit about um, how people's individual needs, the needs of society, when they line up, when they don't line up, and what might be the, the proper road when we consider what is morally right from both a personal perspective and a societal perspective.
0: So, if I think I understood your cor- question correctly, um, which which we cl- clarified just now, um, it's this question, which which is really a. It's it's got a common theme in society. Uh, in this case, it's, do I do what's good for me versus do I do what's good for the masses? Uh, other, in other philosophies or other philosophers have posited that doesn't matter the ends, do the ends justify the means or do the means matter and the end doesn't. And obviously that would be, of course, utilitarian versus Kantian, uh, philosophy, ethics. So... I think the idea in general is, is this understanding that it's not one or the other. You have to smash them both together. And it makes sense, right? Because we know that in a variety of different circumstances, and I'll pick one as an example, being a caregiver for a loved one, um, that burns you out, right? You're taking care of somebody else 24-7. You're not doing any self-care. And what happens? You get burnt out. And even the best of us will become sloppy, make mistakes, and and God forbid at, at that point even get to the point where they are angry or even, even have derogatory feelings towards the person they're caring for, uh, feeling like they don't want to do it anymore, they can't. And I think that's... This is an answer to that. This is the understanding of why we always tell people that if you can't take care of yourself, you can't take care of anyone else. And similarly, you have to do what's right for you and for others. And And it's really, it's a very simple thing to put on paper. It's a very simple thing to say. It's not always a simple thing to do. And I would like to think that The rest of this is really an explanation of how to do that, right? So, you know, Avi, here's the question back to you, because we go a step further, right? First, Rebbe says, and, and I would love for you to just take a moment to clarify, you know, obviously, they tell us who Rebbe is. And Rebbe presumably does denote someone who's very important. However, as any of us who have children who come home from a yeshiva, they, they have six or seven rebbees. So how are we to know which rebbe is who? And I want you to go over that while I you know, work towards fashioning the next piece of the question for you.
1: Sure. So <clears throat> Rabbi Yehuda HaNasi, who lived approximately 200 of the common era, is known as the redactor of the Mishnah. Um, so he was the individual who put together the multiple versions of the Mishnaic uh, material. Um, those that that did not make it into the Mishnah are often known as the Braita or the Tosefta. Those can be found in the Gemaras, and uh, Braita is usually an alternative alternate version of a Mishnah, a slightly, a slightly different version. A Tosefta is other material from Mishnah times that can be found in the Gemara, but does not appear really, to a certain extent, almost in any form in the Mishnah. Um, and so Rabbi Yehuda was the the redactor, and he was uh, the Nasi, the prince of that time, uh, not in the prince in the sense of being the son of the king, but rather as being the head of the Beit Din. Uh, And so it was under this authority that he recognized that our Torah Shabbal Peh, the the oral tradition that had been handed down, really needed to be written down. And so he took all of these sort of um, different sets of notes that people had taken, and he redacted it into one official version of the Mishnah. And like I said, that was done right around 200 of the common era. He's also the one who put it into six sections um, and organized it by topic, as opposed to one of the other ways that it might have been
0: organized. I want to throw a follow-up question at you, Avi, because it's, it's time as we bring in chapter 2, Perikbet. Um, You just said that he was the prince of the Beit Din, presumably because we know who the king is, and part of me was wondering if this is the connection with why we have Brashit, right? It starts with a bet, not an aleph, and we have a prince, not a king. And yet, we begin our Mishnayot with chapter one, Avi, why is this the exception? So if you look at
1: the traditional text, you'll find that while we do begin our chapters with one, usually we begin our pagination with bet.
0: Yes, I know. That's why I'm so
1: disturbed by chapter one. Because um, I think the idea of we do... In other words, even in even in Chumash, right? We say that Breshit is is still found in Parak Aleph of of the Chumash. We also have to keep in mind that things like Prakim and Psukim, right? The chapters and the verses of the Torah are technically from a uh, were, were set up by the rabbis and. So this, as being part of rabbinic literature, also calls upon that tradition that we, we sort of tip our hats to God being the king by saying, this isn't the place where we begin. We begin on page bet because there's always an aleph to learn before it. But we don't change pagination. We don't change uh, numeration of chapters or verses in other words, we still say that Breshit is Perik Aleph, Pasuk Aleph.
0: Got it. So, in looking at this, um, in, at this Mishnah, in its full kind of forest view, so we have Rabbi saying, "How how does a man choose his path?" And then we have the answer, of course, in a set of three. We have perform a big mitzvah, the same as you would a little mitzvah, with the same scrupulous nature. We have figure out the reward of the rewards, the rewards of a mitzvah versus the cost of an avera. And know that someone's watching you. Avi, it starts with not what one would presume is know that someone is watching you, which one would argue, is the making sure that you do what's good for yourself, for yourself, because presumably this is when you think no one's watching, know that there is. And it doesn't begin with calculate the reward of a mitzvah versus the cost and the reward of an avera. It begins with perform a major mitzvah with the same scrupulous nature as a minor mitzvah or vice versa. Doesn't matter because you're supposed to be just as scrupulous for both of them. Avi, what does this mean?
1: So I think if we're looking at the forest as a whole, what you can see in this Mishnah is that I what I was asking you is that what Rebbe is doing is really continuing to follow the three-part theme that we saw in the first parak, But what he is doing is he is trying to answer the different reasons that people might do a a, a, a mitzvah. So he's starting with the most, um, I I would think, it's altruistic. In other words, do a mitzvah because it's the right thing to do. And don't worry about whether you're going to get a big reward for it or a little reward for it because you don't know what the reward is. A mitzvah that might be very simple to one of us can be very difficult for someone else. And a mitzvah that is difficult for us may be simple to someone else. Or a mitzvah that might seem simple to everyone, right? We talk about there are mitzvot that are ase, things you have to do, and mitzvot lota ase, things you don't have to do or should not do, right? So who knows what the reward is for don't murder? So every minute I am not murdering, I'm doing a mitzvah. Right. And what's the reward for that? Versus there might be other mitzvot that are far more difficult. Um, Again, either individually for me or for people in general. And so I think he's trying to take the altruistic route in terms of that. And then he goes to the second one. But if that didn't speak to you, right, then let's calculate the cost of the mitzvah against its reward and the reward against its cost. In other words, so... But you
0: can't because we already established in the line above that we don't know what the reward is for each one.
1: Correct. So I think in this case, he's not talking about the reward as in, I get mitzvah points or I get God points up in heaven. I think in this case, he's talking more about the social and emotional um, repercussions In other words, I might say to myself, hey, you know, uh, I could go out and I could do this small sin and nobody would really know. But what are the repercussions for me socially and emotionally? And then I go and say, okay, or I can go out and do this much more public mitzvah and what are the repercussions of that, socially and emotionally. And then the last part is um, where he talks about, and if that didn't speak to you, if the social and emotional repercussions didn't speak to you, then maybe the fear of God will actually speak to you, and that you are being watched, and God has an ever-watching eye and a listening ear, and all of the things you are doing are being written down. And for some people, that might be what it takes for them to stay on the straight and narrow,
0: so to speak. We just finished celebrating Purim, which in and of itself begins, the Megillah opens with a beautiful party filled with wine and debauchery and horrible behavior, but everybody's having a really good time. So that's a, that's a pretty beneficial Avera, one would imagine, versus the old saying, you don't win friends with salad. So so Avi, I hear what you're saying, but I guess my my question really is, the order doesn't make sense. The order with which he gives the answer is where I'm not quite sure. Because, yeah, okay, so we don't know what the reward is. But the fact is, is I'm still focused on that very first part of be just as scrupulous with something that's seemingly a small mitzvah. And I get We don't know what's really a small mitzvah. We don't know what's really a large mitzvah. But I don't really have to be just as scrupulous with not murdering someone as I do with, uh, you know, making sure that I... Visit the sick, or or give tzedakah. I mean, I, I can very very easily not murder someone, but I have to put in the same effort. Really, I, I might argue that if we really
1: follow the words of the Chafetz Chaim, it can be even more difficult not to murder someone. Because in the case of the Chafetz Chaim, he's saying it's not murder is not just where you physically kill someone, right? But public embarrassment can. Can also be considered "quote unquote" killing someone because you make their face go red. You um, to really to really uh, embarrass someone in public could be to um, to to make them a pariah uh, in the community. And I will share, without naming names, that I was invited not this year but but uh, several years ago to the house of one of the rabbis in my community that I respected greatly for a Purim Sudha. And this person was one of the most gentle and sweet, sweetest people I knew. I still know. And uh, when we got together for Purim, he had a couple of drinks. And he began to make withering comments to people. Really things that I think he thought he was saying in jest, but he, he, he was actually in some ways being quite offensive. And, you know, and, and it said to me that this is somebody who, uh, for better or for worse, unfortunately probably should not, either should not drink or, or, or sh- should not have company when he drinks, um, or, or should only be surrounded by those closest to him so that he does not um, embarrass himself and embarrass his guests. Um, in this type of situation. And so, you know, I, I think that sometimes when we think about not murdering somebody, we go, well, of course, I've, you know, gone 50 years without murdering anyone so far, so I'm doing okay. But how many times do we really embarrass someone? Again, whether it's in public, or perhaps even in private, say something that afterwards we regret, but aren't quite sure how to apologize for. And so I think that that this idea of what is a simple mitzvah, what is a what is a difficult mitzvah. Again, I think there are communal standards, but I think there's there's private things as well, you know. You talk to somebody who who did not grow up observant and they may say Every day, every day I still long for that bacon cheeseburger. And every day I don't have it, I know I'm doing a mitzvah. Whereas someone who's never, who grew up uh, observant, may say, I, I've never had one. I really don't know what I'm missing. And so it doesn't bother me. And for some people, it may be some sort of physical experience with somebody of the opposite gender. For somebody else, it might be the ability to go out and and uh, do something else, right? It may be that they feel like they're giving up a tremendous amount by not working on Shabbat. But whatever the case may be, I don't know that we can say that what's hard for you is hard for me and what's easy for you is easy for me. And so there's a communal component to it, but there's also an individual component to it. As for your question about the order, again, I think he is going from the piece that would speak to the individual most to the piece that is, I guess, hit them over the head with the frying pan in the sense that I'm not sure I would want to be told that the best reason that I shouldn't do an Avera is because there's always somebody watching you and if you don't do the right thing, it's going to be written down and you're going to be in trouble I work in a school system, and kids have long heard the unfortunate phrase, that's going to go on your permanent record. I don't know about other schools. The secret in my school is I'm not sure there really is a permanent record. There's a record of what you do, but it isn't your whole life. And I think that the importance of understanding that really you should do things because it's what's right for you and for society is a much more internalized, much more important message than the idea of you shouldn't do something because somebody else is watching you.
0: So it's beautifully said. And I, and I love what you did because you really kind of turned around the idea of we're starting with the, you know, you turned it into the answer that is true for as we were all taught in writing in in elementary school, which is start with the most important thing. And you've shown how that is in some ways the most important piece is because when you think about the depth of that very first piece, it really does have a significant and beautiful depth to it. And, and I, I, I appreciate how you kind of, you know, went with that last line of, well, you know, there's someone watching. Uh, which I guess we should talk more about that because the truth is, is that many of us can behave beautifully in public and many of us can even bring that into our private lives where we still behave like wonderful mensches. But when we're alone, and maybe even sometimes when we're alone in our own world and our own thoughts, which... I won't expect you to answer, Avi, because I suppose that theoretically is more my area to answer, but when we're alone and we think no one else is taking into account, and we know that maybe we're not hurting anyone else, how are we still supposed to go on this idea of, well, you know, there's someone keeping a list and checking it twice? I mean, to me,
1: again, sort of going back to that big idea, this is sort of the, the nuclear option in the sense that if I truly believe that there is an entity in the world that is larger than I am, that is more, um, that, that is omnipotent and cares about me, then it cares what I choose to do. God cares about my choices and what I choose to do, seemingly even down to the littlest things. And on the one hand, that might seem a little bit silly, right? This idea of how do I, you know, do do I or don't I use tissues versus ripped toilet paper on Shabbat? Who's really going to know in the bathroom? When I'm by myself, but it reminds me of something, and I'm, I'm not going to remember which college it is, but one of the college's basketball teams used to start the first practice of every year by showing students, showing the basketball players how to put their socks on correctly. Because if you put your socks on correctly, then you won't get blisters. Blisters. And then you tie your shoes, and you tie your shoes correctly, you'll get better grip on the court. And again, you won't get blisters. And that leads to, when you're running, where are your feet moving? And do you have the grip you need to be able to turn to the left, to the right, whatever the case may be? right? And so it's all about doing the little things that need to be done so that you build up your skills, abilities, belief in yourself and the bigger picture to be able to have the bigger things in place. And to me, I think that's part of it as well, is that in addition to not knowing that which is minor, that which is major, for either mitzvot or for aveirot, for for positive commandments or for sins by doing the little things it helps us build up to
0: the bigger things okay so here's the question for your Shabbos table what is something little that you're going to take on or that you're going to stop and Maybe you can figure out for yourself, or if you choose to discuss it with your family or around the Shabbos table, is it really a little thing?
1: Thank Thank you you for listening. listening. If you'd like to reach us, you can reach us at iqdiscuss at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you and responding.